Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, and verses 1 through 11. Romans chapter 5, the first 11 verses. Let's give careful attention now to God's Word, beginning in verse 1 of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die." But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, focusing our attention upon verses 3 through 5. Verses 3 through 5. Paul is giving us various benefits that are possessed by those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have been justified, declared righteous in the sight of God by faith in what Christ has done. Uh, They've received peace with God, no longer enemies, but friends of God, reconciled through the death and resurrection of Christ. And through Christ, he said, verse 2, that uh, as believers we have access by faith into this grace, into God's favorable disposition and attitude towards all of His children. And it's through that grace and through our experience of that favor of God that we stand and that we're able to persevere to the end, which then enables us to rejoice in hope of the glory of God, which is to come for all who by the grace of God endure to the end. But he says, verse 3, and not only that, in other words, not only do we rejoice in our eternal glorious future, not only that, but we also glory could be translated rejoice or even boast. 
We also boast in tribulations. These are afflictions, burdens, things that press in on us, things that make our life difficult. We boast in tribulations knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. So what he's saying here is that the reason we can rejoice and give thanks and even boast in our difficult circumstances in the Christian life is that we know how this works. We know that God is sovereign and that He's brought these tribulations into our lives to produce three very important things. Things that we absolutely need in order to persevere to the end and enjoy that glory of God yet to come. And so the tribulations initially produce perseverance, or as we've said in our series, endurance. As we encounter difficulties and the Lord enables us to to overcome and to bear up under these difficulties, we gain endurance. Just like if you run a half a mile every morning, then you, you increase the challenge. And you run a mile every morning. And then you run five miles every morning. And then perhaps you're ready to run a half marathon or something like that and put one of those stickers on the back of your car. Okay. Uh, the difficulty, the challenge, as it increases, produces endurance. So now this is not your first rodeo. You've experienced tribulation. And now the next tribulation comes along and you endure that and it gives you experience. Translated here as character but the word is better understood as experience, as the King James says. And so, your endurance breeds or produces experience. God has been faithful in the past. That reinforces your confidence and hope that He'll be faithful moving forward. And eventually, that increases your hope, which we're going to look at with God's help this morning. But the point is that tribulations are valuable, and so they're not merely negative. Yes, we grieve over them. Yes, there are difficult things. We don't want to minimize that as if we're just, you know, in in an unqualified sense, rejoicing, glorying, and boasting when a loved one dies or when something very bad takes place. No, but there's a sense in which we can count it all joy because of what God is doing in the tribulation and how it's producing endurance, experience, and thereby producing hope. We know these things. Well, we should know these things. That's why Paul's written this letter to remind the believers at Rome of these things so that we would know them and so that through that knowledge we would be sanctified and equipped to face the trials that no doubt God will bring into our lives. Now, the hope that's produced by experience is twofold. So we've spent a number of weeks looking at how endurance produces experience, as I just explained. But that experiential validation, yes, God was faithful before He's going to be faithful again. Yes, God enabled me to exercise true faith in the past, and so I see an experiential validation, yes, that my faith is real. And so I can exercise it with confidence in God the next time. And so all these things are being validated in my experience. And now that increases my hope. And that hope is twofold. First, 
it involves hope of deliverance in the next trial. And when I say the next trial, what I mean is the the subsequent trial, a trial that comes after the last trial. It may be the next trial, or it may be a trial that has presently come into your experience and you're presently wrestling with it. And you think back to the last time God delivered you and you trusted Him and He did not disappoint you. And so now you have hope for deliverance in this next immediate trial. Now it could be that you're not presently in a trial or tribulation in any significant sense, but you're concerned that one could be on the horizon. And that would fall under this first aspect of this experientially grounded hope. That there's hope of deliverance in the next trial. Whatever that trial may be. Maybe you're not sure, but you're not overwhelmed by the uncertainty of it because you know God was faithful before. We see an example of this first aspect to to this hope. Hope of deliverance in the next trial. And that occurs in 1 Samuel 17 and verse 33 where David is facing off with Goliath. Here we have, of course, the familiar story for most of us. You've got the Philistines on one side and you've got the Israelites under King Saul on the other side, both with their armies. And in the valley, the Philistines send out their champion, Goliath, who is over nine feet tall and is an experienced warrior who's slain many men, no doubt. And he comes out into the middle of the valley between the two armies, between the two camps, and he defies the armies of the living God. He blasphemes God. He mocks the people of God. And the Israelites are trembling in fear. And David has been sent by his father. He's not a soldier, but he's been sent by his father to bring supplies to his older brothers who are in the army. And so he happens to be there. Goliath's doing this for weeks upon weeks on end. And David happens to see one of these instances where Goliath comes out and mocks the living God and challenges the Israelites. If you send out a warrior, uh, essentially we'll go all in and whoever, whichever warrior, whichever champion wins that duel will decide the, the conflict. And if Goliath wins, the Israelites will be servants and slaves of the Philistines. And if the Israelite champion is victorious, then the Israelites will be the masters and the Philistines will go back to their own land off of the, out of the promised land which they've been occupying. And so you have this conflict, but none of the Israelites are stepping up to the plate. None of them are willing to go out into the valley and face off against Philistia's champion. But we find David stirred up by the Holy Spirit to go out and do battle on behalf of God's people and in defense of the Lord's honor. And you can see throughout this chapter, again, most of us are familiar with it, David's older brothers impugn his motives. They say, well, you're just overzealous. You don't know what you're doing. You're just a a young boy who's gotten uh, overwhelmed with this foolish idea. And so they, they give him a hard time. And then King Saul says, listen, this is an experienced warrior. And, and David has a response to the doubts of God's people. He says, verse 33, Saul says to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. 
For you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So David is giving an answer for the hope that is within him. Even the people of God have lost hope because they put their trust in a king who's a head taller than all the other Israelites. Well, isn't that special? Now we've got a nine foot tall giant and Saul is not quite as tall as in comparison. And so they're trusting in the flesh and God shows the utter foolishness of it. And so David comes as this believing youth and he has hope and he has confidence. Why? Because he endured the trials out in the pasture, shepherding the sheep. He endured those trials. He has experience with the Lord's deliverance. He, by God's grace, by God's strength, killed the lion, killed the bear, rescued the lambs out of their mouths, and this Philistine will be no different. David says, I I have hope and confidence that I'll go out there just like I've done with the lion and the bear that attacked my father's sheep, and I'll go out now and defend the Lord's sheep, and I'll defend them against this lion, against this bear, against this aggressive, violent Philistine, and the Lord will deliver me like he did before. That's endurance producing experience, producing hope, and a hope that does not leave David ashamed. He ends up cutting off Goliath's head with Goliath's own sword. Hope of deliverance in the next trial. And that's something that needs to be cultivated before the trial happens. This is not something that just randomly lightning, spiritual lightning struck David at that moment. No, David had that hope before he ever knew that there was a Goliath of Gath threatening the people of God. He had that hope out in the fields shepherding the sheep. He had that hope with him because he endured, he had experience, and he knew that God would continue to be faithful. And so he was, as it were, waiting for the next trial, ready to face it with confidence in God. And again, that confidence, that hope was not left to be disappointed. Well, the second aspect of this experientially grounded hope is even broader than that. Hope of deliverance in all remaining trials. This is, this is very important. It's not only necessary that we would have hope with respect to the individual concrete trials that may come our way, the next trial, but we need to have hope of deliverance from all remaining trials or through all remaining trials. God doesn't always deliver us from the trial. Sometimes it's through the trial. But we need confidence that, in other words, He's going to give us final perseverance. That God's been faithful for me, to me in the past, and therefore I have confidence that He's not just going to deliver me from Goliath, but He's going to deliver me time and time again until He brings me to His everlasting kingdom. And I will spend eternity, David says in Psalm 23, 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He says, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with me, and goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Final perseverance, comprehensive deliverance from all remaining trials. And interestingly, we see that same theme earlier in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 7 and verse 12. In this chapter, it's a beautiful chapter where Samuel labors for 20 years on a preaching circuit throughout the promised land of Israel, preaching to the people of God for decades and proclaiming God's truth and God's righteousness and God's mercy. And eventually, there is revival among the people of God. Eventually, the Holy Spirit takes that Uh, faithful preaching ministry for many years that didn't have a lot of uh, amazing fruits or or anecdotes of success, at least not recorded in the Scriptures. But, But eventually, the Lord stirs up the Israelites and in great numbers, they gather together before Samuel and Uh, They repent of their sin and they cast away their idols. And all of this is in conjunction with, as is frequently the case with revivals, God raising up uh, an enemy, a foe. He he raises up the Philistines who threaten the people of God and it stirs the people to cry out to God and God uses that circumstance to promote this revival, similar to the Great Awakening which took place around the time of many of the conflicts that, that were related to the French and Indian War. And you can read of the sermons of Samuel Davies in a wonderful two-volume set that's been republished by uh, Reformation Heritage. But you can read at least one sermon in there where he's addressing the reality of these uh, wartime raids upon the communities of the people, and there's fear and trepidation and uncertainty, and God uses that to stir up the people on this continent to a a sensitive heart toward the message of the Bible, and eventually revival takes place, the Great Awakening. And that's similar to what's happening here. But in any event, the people cry out to the Lord, and He delivers them. By the way, that's the pattern that we need in this country. Not people saying, well, Uh, let's find a King Saul. (laughs) The the Christian prince is going to deliver us from all these things. No. How about the Christian God? How about the God of Elijah? How about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? These people under the ministry of Samuel, not Samson, the man with mighty power, that failed, under Samuel, the Spirit-anointed preacher of the Gospel, a godly man representing the true heart of faith and obedience that God desired from His people. Speak, Lord, for Your servant hears. Samuel led the people, and what happened? They repented and God delivered them with thunderbolts from heaven, with lightning and thunder. God, verse um, 10, now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, biblical worship, always connected to biblical revival, as he was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel, but the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. Uh, Somebody ought to write a book on that. 
Well, it's already been written. It's called the Bible. And it's the biblical strategy for overcoming the incursions of the Philistines which God raises up to stir us up to faith and to repentance and to revival by the Holy Spirit. And we're told that God helped them. And that Samuel, verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. Thus far the Lord has helped us. And the point of that memorial, my friends, was so that God's people would look to it and would be reminded God enabled us to endure. He experientially validated His promise that if if my people humble themselves, pray, seek my face, I know that promise came later, but in substance, His covenant promise, turn to me and I will deliver you. That was experientially validated and they're to look to that so that they can say the Lord helped us thus far, therefore He will help us moving forward. That is the purpose of that memorial. As we sang in Psalm 116, uh, when the psalmist cried out to the Lord, what happened? The psalmist cried out to the Lord. The Lord heard him. Verse 1, He's heard my voice uh, and my supplications because He has inclined His ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon Him as long as I live. Notice, He doesn't say, God heard me once, so I'm going to be confident the next time. Now, that's true, but He extends it to all remaining trials. God has helped me thus far. He's heard my prayer thus far. Therefore, I will call upon Him as long as I live. He who began a good work in me will be faithful, not just the next time, but to complete it even to the day of Christ Jesus. Final perseverance. And this is essential to any kind of a fruitful or mature Christian life. You need that assurance. You can't be like the Roman Catholics who say, apart from some vision from heaven, you can't know absolutely that your faith is of such a nature that it will persevere. You can't know for sure that God has elected you unto final salvation. You see even some aspects of this in the federal vision and other false teachings. But it calls into question the idea that you can have true assurance, infallible assurance of your own final perseverance unto eternal life in heaven. But the Bible says otherwise. It says He's helped me thus far. I have endurance. I have experience. God has experientially validated His promise. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that He will sustain me. And I know that He will complete the good work He's begun even to the day of Christ Jesus. I'll call on Him throughout my whole life. And I'll know for certain that He will hear me and answer me and deliver me. That, my friends, is crucial. You need that. And this logical chain of reasoning from endurance to experience to hope falls uh, entirely to the ground apart from one very important presupposition. Okay, This vital chain of reasoning that we absolutely need to live a prosperous Christian life, spiritually prosperous, uh, endurance, experience, hope, 
falls to the ground apart from one very important presupposition, and that is this, the unchangeable character of God's steadfast covenant love. The unchangeable character of God's steadfast covenant love. Why? Because, you see, God delivered me in the past because He loved me. My confidence that He's going to deliver me in the present or in the future has to be grounded in that same basis of why He did it in the past. If He delivered me in the past because He loved me, but He stopped loving me, then He's not going to deliver me in the present and He's not going to deliver me on into the future throughout my life. And I'm not going to have goodness and mercy following me all my days. And I'm not going to necessarily dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because all I've got is, well, God loved me and delivered me, but does He still love me? Does He still love me with the love that, as it were, reverently speaking, causes Him to deliver me time and time again? And so, this endurance and experience really translated into a biblical covenantal framework would say this, not just God delivered me then, therefore He'll deliver me again, but God loved me then, and you see God loves me now, and God will always love me. That's the undergirding logical presupposition here. It's the unchangeable character of God's steadfast covenant love. If His covenant love for me as a believer is not the same yesterday, today, and forever, all of this falls to the ground. We have to be confident, yes, God loved me then, therefore He helped me thus far, but He loves me now and He will always love me. God's steadfast covenant love is the source of the past deliverances and the basis of our continuity of hope and expectation into the present and into the future. And that's why when you look at the hope of God's people, God's believing people throughout history, it is frequently associated with His covenant love. We sang this in Psalm 33, 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His mercy. And that word mercy should be familiar to us throughout the Old Testament. Chesed, His steadfast covenant love. We're told on those who hope in His mercy. So we're not just hoping in our endurance and experience in the past, but on the steadfast love that undergirds it. Also, Psalm 130, verses 5-8, through which, Lord willing, we'll sing after the service. Notice the emphasis on hope. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His Word, I do hope. My soul waits waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. So, so there's this hope. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, chesed, steadfast covenant love. And with Him is abundant redemption. He shall, notice the future tense, And He shall redeem Israel from all His iniquities. So earlier in the psalm, 
He's confessing his sin. He's receiving God's forgiveness. He's being enabled to fear and reverence God. And then he's hoping for the future. He's expecting, he's waiting for the Lord to shine the light of his countenance upon him. And he's exercising hope in what? In the Lord's steadfast covenant love, in his abundant redemption, which involves a love that projects into the future. He shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Not just that he'll do it now or that he did it in the past, but from here on, moving forward, he will remove and cleanse away and redeem away all of our iniquities, hoping in that steadfast covenant love. And of course, this is at the heart of the biblical hope that's presented in Paul's epistle to the Romans. And you see it coming to something of a crescendo in terms of its application to individual believers in Romans chapter 8. So Romans chapter 8, there's so much in here we're not going to deal with, but verse 35, as he's explaining the ultimate foundation of our hope of final perseverance unto the end. In fact, you go back to verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And remember, Romans chapter 5 is saying those who are justified by faith have this hope of glory, this hope in the midst of tribulations, this hope that will not disappoint them moving forward. And he says those who've been called are justified. Those who are justified, he also glorified. Past tense. It's a done deal. Your final perseverance as a justified believer is certain because of God's eternal predestinating love. You say, where, where do you find love in that passage. Well, it does say that he foreknew us, and the word know there is similar to the meaning when Adam knew his wife Eve. It means a relationship of love. When Jesus speaks to those unbelievers, those wicked, disobedient servants in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I never knew you. We never had a love relationship with one another. Uh, But it's even more explicit, verse 35, because he presents the lack of final perseverance as our being separated from the love of Christ, which means, by logical inference, that our perseverance is inseparably tied to the love of God in Christ. So he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, there's our word. See, all these things are interconnected. We have hope in tribulation because ultimately we have hope in the love of God in Jesus Christ that cannot be taken from us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? See, Paul in Romans 5 is giving us the shorthand version, but now he's giving us the extended version. Romans 5 is the shorter version catechism, if you will. This is the larger. This expands it. Not just tribulation, but we're including all types of affliction. Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. 
As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors. In Greek, it's super conquerors. Super conquerors. Uh, And make of that word what you will. But it, it has a certain ring to it, a certain power, robustness. That in all these things, in all these tribulations and afflictions... We are super conquerors through Him who delivered us in the past. Well, yes, but Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. So good angels, bad angels, the whole lot of them. Nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the basis of our hope. God's steadfast covenant love is unchanging and in fact unchangeable. And that's crucial for us to understand. In fact, you go back to Romans 5 and uh, it becomes very clear why Paul pivots here Otherwise, in a sort of inexplicable way, but he pivots here to a discussion of the love of God. That's why he does it. Because hoping in previous deliverances is nothing if we don't have a hope in God's unchangeable, steadfast covenant love. Now, at this point, Paul, in introducing this notion of God's steadfast love, addresses two, at least two, common temptations that come into our experience as believers that tempt us to doubt God's love and to fear that ultimately we're going to be disappointed by our confidence in God's love and our hope in the glory to come. And you can see that even in verse 5. Now, hope does not disappoint. See, he's anticipating these common temptations which lure us into disbelief and uncertainty and fear that God's love and God's promises and all these things, our endurance, experience, this, the logic of the whole thing is going to leave us utterly disappointed at the end of the day and at the end of our lives. And so Paul's responding to, to two very common temptations to that end. First, the temptation that says, listen, uh, and this is your soul speaking to, to yourself, an internal temptation, listen, the fallible nature of your subjective personal experience makes this pointless, okay? Your subjective personal experience, your, your endurance and your thinking back and, and personally, subjectively remembering something in the past that God did for you, and then you're building this experiential validation of God's faithfulness to you and of the veracity and truth of Scripture and your subjective personal hope in those things, strengthened by those things, this is all fallible. You're fallible. You make mistakes. You could be remembering these things wrongly. You may think God delivered you in the past, but you may not even have read that situation accurately, and it was, maybe it was just some random thing. Maybe you're just reading into it. You see these fallible subjective personal experiences are nothing 
And you say, yes, but I believe, I hope, I sense it. And, and you go through an affliction and there are times when you remember the Lord's faithfulness and there are times when believers on their deathbed have a sense of joy and delight and hope of glory in their subjective personal experience. They feel saved. They feel the love of God. They feel the hope of glory to come. They know it, not just in their minds theologically, but it surrounds them and pervades them. And they are in, in, in ecstasy in this hope of the glory to come. And yet the temptation comes in to burst the bubble. Listen, this is just subjective, personal experience. You're fallible. And so this love that's been poured out into your heart, you're just playing games in your own mind and imposing this upon all these things which are meaningless in themselves and unworthy of your consideration during this time. Well, that's the first temptation. The second temptation that comes in, which is perhaps even more common, is the temptation that emphasizes the effect of my ongoing sins against God. Right? So, God loved me and He delivered me in the past, but you see, since that deliverance, have I been grateful and thankful and obedient to Him? Have I rendered Him all the worship and adoration that He deserves for that? Have I lived in a way that's in keeping with that? Or have I utterly, utterly sinned against that deliverance? Sinned against His love? Sinned against His faithfulness? Have I responded to God's gracious deliverance in the past by throwing it in His teeth and running the other direction through my disobedience to His commandments? And you see, every believer, every true believer is going to be conscious of ways in which we've sinned against the love of God in the past. We've sinned against the deliverances of the past. And we'll be convicted of those sins against the love of God. And here comes the temptation. Of course, it's legitimate to be convicted of those things. It's good to be convicted of those things. The Holy Spirit convicts us of those things so that we would confess our sins knowing that He's faithful and just to forgive us. But you see, this temptation comes in and says, well, does He still love me? Uh, Yo, His unchangeable covenant love. Yes, but is it really unchangeable? given the sins that I've committed, given my unfaithfulness, given how I've utterly spurned His grace and His gifts in the past, does He still love me after I've done this? You you, you say, don't quote these verses to me, don't quote these promises until I tell you what I've done with the sins that I've committed. You have no idea the filth that I have consumed and that has come out of me. And this is a temptation. Does God still love me? This is something the psalmist wrestles with in Psalm 77, verse 7. Will the Lord cast off forever? Will He be favorable no more? Has His mercy, His steadfast love ceased forever? Has His promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has He in anger shut up His tender mercies. That's the temptation Paul has to deal with here. Now, in response to the first temptation, or the first objection, namely, 
This is just your subjective personal experience. Isn't that special for you? But it's not objective reality. You just feel saved and you feel this hope and you feel a certain interpretation about your past experiences and you feel this confidence, but it's just fallible, subjective experience. It's nothing significant and you should immediately discard it uh, as uncertain and unreliable. And Paul responds to this attack, this temptation in verse 5. He says, now hope does not disappoint. Now when he says hope, he's speaking both objectively and subjectively. So as we're going to see and as we've already seen from these verses, we have an objective hope in the character of God, the faithfulness of God. But Paul is not merely speaking of that when he says that tribulation produces endurance and endurance experience and experience hope. He's not merely saying that because those are experiences that he's saying, that he's referring to. The experience of tribulation. The experience of endurance. The experience of experience. So the hope that he's referring to is a hope that is not merely objectively grounded on the Word of God, but it is enhanced by the Christian experience of the believer. And so it has a subjective element. And Paul is saying, embrace that subjective element. Not not in place of the objective, but this is important. When you're on your deathbed and Jesus draws near to you and gives you hope and joy and expectation of the glory to come, I hope you don't say, well, I'm a Calvinist. I don't have any interest in that. No, rejoice in it. This is Christian experience. This is the hope that Paul's speaking of here. The full fruition of experiential hope. And the the objection, the temptation that says, oh, this is just pure subjectivism. Paul responds. He says, this hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That same Holy Spirit whose active ministry in our lives, sanctifying us, comforting us, helping us to pray, giving us this experiential hope. That same Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit who inspired the Bible. That Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, fully God, with full infallibility. When He bears witness with your spirit in accordance with the Scriptures, not saying some merely subjective experience, but again, this verse is in the Bible, and you're reading it, and you're taking it in. And you're experiencing that hope and you can see that the source of that testimony of hope in your soul is not merely your own soul in an echo chamber talking to itself. But it's the Holy Spirit testifying with your spirit that you are a child of God. Romans 8, 15-17. It's the spirit of adoption enabling you to cry out, Abba, Father. And, and, and the person who says, or the temptation that says, that's just subjective. Oh, it is subjective. It is subjective, but it's grounded in what the Bible says the Holy Spirit will do in the hearts of His children. Yes, Romans 8 includes He'll enable you to kill sin. He'll enable you to walk in the Spirit. We're not doubting that. But in conjunction with that, He gives you this testimony confirming in your soul and in your experience that hope of glory to come. And that is not mere subjectivism. In fact, our confession of faith 
recognizing the biblical teaching here, says that believers are able to rise up at times to a, an infallible assurance. Why is it infallible? It's infallible because the, the source of that testimony is the Holy Spirit Himself, who is Himself infallible. And you can see later in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you. This is subjective, friends. This is experiential. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by your own mere fallible subjective... No. By the power of the Holy Spirit to doubt this hope, this biblical hope, objective and subjective, to doubt that testimony of the Spirit when the Spirit's prompting you to cry out, Abba, Father, and you say, well, that's just Pentecostal nonsense. That actually is, is quenching the Spirit. Paul warns us not to quench the Spirit. You're quenching the Holy Spirit. The God of hope, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, that's where that prompting is coming from. And it's infallible when it comes. The God of hope, may He fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is referred to in the New Testament epistles on multiple occasions as the earnest or the down payment on our hope of glory to come. So again, when the love of God floods into your soul on the basis of your confidence in God's objective word and His objective promise, understand that is the infallible Holy Spirit. That's Him. And you need to view that feeling, that hope, that confidence that you have on the basis of God's promise as the work of a person as the personal work of the Holy Spirit who ha- whose ministry has been given to you as a believer. And that is the down payment, the earnest uh, of our inheritance in the life to come. So much more could be said there. But uh, let's look at how Paul responds to the second temptation. The second objection to this experientially grounded hope. Paul responds to this notion that our sins will hinder the love of God and that our sins against God's love will then somehow short-circuit God's faithfulness to deliver us in the future. How does he respond to that? Well, he responds to that by asserting the unconditional nature of God's loving deliverance in the past. Think about it. Because you're worried He delivered me in the past because He loved me, but then I sinned against His love. And so now because I've done these bad things, now because I'm a sinner, now because in this situation I've acted in an ungodly way, and He's given me all that I need for life and godliness, but I've been weak and powerless to do His will, and I've really opposed God and been His enemy, and so now He's not going to deliver me and, and love me in the present or in the future. But you see, Paul says, you've forgotten the nature of the gospel itself, haven't you? When God lovingly delivered you in the past, was it grounded in your faithfulness? 
For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. So you see what he's saying is these loving deliverances in the past were not grounded in your performance and neither will the loving deliverances in the future. Now I'm not denying that your decision to obey or disobey God, that that it's going to affect your experience and it might affect the way in which God delivers you and what things that he must now deliver you from because you've, you, you've sinned and brought yourself into a chastening uh, situation. But, but the fact of the matter is, at a baseline level, at a foundational level, God will deliver you, and he will preserve you, and he will cause you to persevere to the end. Because the salvation that he gave you in the past wasn't based on your performance, You are a powerless, ungodly sinner in opposition and enmity against God. And so if He delivered you then, how much more now that you have been reconciled? right? If He delivered you when when you were an unregenerate, ungodly wretch, how much more is He going to deliver you as a disobedient Christian? The, The logic is flawless. How much more now? And so... Paul says, if you're going to look at what God's done in the past, especially turn your attention to what He did through His Son to purchase your redemption. And he gets to this in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, how do we know He's for us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? See that? God sent His Son to die for you as an enemy, as a sinner, as an ungodly wretch, and He spared not His own Son. You think He's going to fail to give you what you need to live the Christian life? Perish the thought. Perish the thought. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Ah, but I've sinned. Yes, but who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and also makes intercession for us. Which is more difficult, do you think, for the God-man in His, let's just say in His humanity, because nothing is difficult for the divine nature. Which was harder for Jesus? To give His life as a ransom for many? To bear the infinite weight of the guilt of your sin? To live a perfect life and overcome the temptations of the devil? So on and so, <coughs> so forth. What was more difficult? That or now as the ascended, glorified, reigning mediator, prophet, priest, and king interceding for you in the joy set before Him at the right hand of God. Clearly, Jesus has accomplished the hardest and most laborious, difficult work for your redemption. Do you think He's going to fail you now? Do you think He's going to give up on you now? If He did the the heavy lifting already, do you think He's going to fail to intercede for you? As our catechism says, notwithstanding daily failings, and give you that approval and acceptance with God and that spiritual grace of sanctification and redemption, do you think He's going to fail you? I don't think so. Paul doesn't think so. 
And God says, you shouldn't think so. And my friends, nothing is more crucial for your Christian life than this. Hope of God's love. And, and I know I've run out of time, but just uh, some applications here. Nothing is more crucial for your practical Christian life than this. Hope of God's love. This is crucial for your piety. This is crucial for your personal relationship with God, which we often refer to as piety. Listen to Jude 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. So this is your piety. This is your prayer life. This is your relationship to the Lord at a private level. He says, what are you going to need to do to have a thriving prayer life in the Spirit? Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for, in other words, hoping for, the mercy, the steadfast love of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. If you're not looking for it, expecting that goodness and mercy to follow you each day, expecting eternity in the joy of your Lord, if you're not surrounding yourself with it through the scriptural promises, keeping yourself in the love of God, don't expect your faith to grow or your prayer life to grow. Secondly, your perseverance. Your perseverance depends upon your hope in the love of God. Not ultimately, but in terms of the means that God has appointed. It's interesting that that cycle here, that circle that exists where endurance or perseverance promotes your hope, but then your hope fuels your perseverance. Listen to Lamentations 3.18. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction and roaming, the wormwood and the gall, My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in Him. How does He persevere? through lamentable situations in the book of Lamentations, how does he persevere? By keeping himself in the love of God, hoping in God's mercy. Uh, we could look at so many others. You could, I'm just going to list some of these. Hosea 14 tells us that your recovery from backsliding stems from your confidence that God will love you freely, even in your backslidden condition, and restore you to fruitfulness. Your worship of God, as you see in our call to worship, at the heart of it involves and is fueled by the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. When we gather for worship, we're anticipating God's blessing, His help, His strength, His love in the day ahead, the week ahead, the years ahead, and eternity to come. That's at the heart of our worship. That's at the heart of our witness. 1 Peter 3.15 says that in bearing witness, we give an answer for the hope that is within us. People should look at us and say, you're crazy. You're living your life for these things yet to come. You're making decisions. And the only way it's going to work out is if God helps you next week, next year, uh, 
if God is with you, if God does something amazing, that's the only way that your lifestyle would make sense. And living for eternity, which is beyond the scope of human experience, it's ridiculous. And these people are willing to even be persecuted. And Peter says, give them an answer for the hope that is within you. Christians should be known as people that are filled with that hope. And finally, the unity of the church, the unity of the church. And we're closing with this, Romans 15. The unity of the church is grounded in that common confession of hope, in the hope we have. Romans 15, 5 and 6. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is it that fuels that unity? The previous verse. Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, and that's our word endurance, by the way, might have hope. So you're in the Scriptures You're taking in the promises. You're keeping yourself in the steadfast love of God. God is big. His love surrounds you. The tribulations are small. You're despising the shame for the hope that is set before you. And what that does as God's people collectively are doing that, the God of endurance and comfort will give us a like-minded spirit. We have one God, one Father, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope of our calling. And that is what the Spirit uses to give us the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we long to dwell in Your house forever. But until then, we pray that goodness and steadfast covenant love would follow us all the days of our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.